0: Taliban has effectively taken control of Afghanistan and the fall of Kabul is likely to have a quick near-term effect on all forms of security. The Indra Group's actions against Iranian interests suggest the potential of non-state politically motivated actors. Crooks return almost all the money rifled from DeFi provider Poly Network. A new C2C service tells hoods if their altcoin is clean. Deep Blue Magic is a new strain of ransomware. Chris Novak from Verizon on advancing incident response. Rick Howard is taking on orchestration in this week's CSO Perspectives podcast, and T-Mobile investigates claims of a data breach. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, August 16th, 2021. Taliban yesterday took Kabul and announced from the presidential palace the restoration of the Emirate of Afghanistan. The effective collapse of Afghanistan's government Sunday and the country's general fall to the Taliban obviously represent a humanitarian disaster. U.S. President Biden intends to address the fall of Kabul later this afternoon. The details of the Taliban's swift return to power after the withdrawal of U.S. forces are beyond the scope of our coverage, but the implications of the fall of Kabul for cybersecurity will become clearer over the coming weeks. ABC News reports that from the U.S. point of view, it seems to have been more policy failure than intelligence failure, or at least an intelligence failure in the sense that, as sources in the U.S. intelligence community said anonymously, that their assessments were disregarded. General Sir Nick Carter, chief of the UK defence staff, told ABC News that the situation would inevitably embolden Islamist radicalism, both in Afghanistan and elsewhere.
1: If we end up with a scenario where state fractures and you end up essentially with a security vacuum, then there's absolutely ideal conditions for international terrorism and violent extremism to prosper yet again.
0: Go to ABC News and listen to the entire interview. The Taliban's ascendancy may also auger an increase in newly emboldened Islamist activity in cyberspace. Historically, that had been largely concentrated on recruitment and operational planning, then on radicalization and inspiration, and of course, on website defacement. Website defacement is unlikely to rise above the nuisance levels it achieved earlier, whether sufficient talent has or will be attracted to the movement to mount more disruptive or destructive attacks remains to be seen. And, of course, a surge in radical inspiration in cyberspace can be expected to follow any Islamist success, and the fall of Afghanistan is a major Islamist success indeed. An example of what a non state actor can accomplish in the ways of politically motivated cyber attacks may be seen in Iran's recent experience. Security firm Checkpoint has more on the Indra Group, an Iranian opposition group it believes to have been responsible for recent cyber attacks affecting Iran's rail system. Some of the effects amounted to taunting defacement in station message boards. But Checkpoint says that there was more to it than that. The group deployed wipers against some of its targets— and the code suggests that they were also behind operations against a range of companies in Syria during 2019 and 2020. The company said, quote, Checkpoint analyzed artifacts left by the cyber attack on Iran's train system, learning that the attack tools were technically and tactically similar to those used in malicious activity against multiple companies in Syria, End quote. The New York Times thinks the incidents illustrate the growing capability of non-state actors quote, an opposition group without the budget, personnel, or abilities of a government could still inflict a good deal of damage, end quote. The Wall Street Journal reports that the thieves have returned almost all of the over $600 million taken from Poly Network. All but about $33 million has been returned, with the outstanding balance entirely in Tether tokens that Tether had frozen in an attempt to recover its funds. Reuters confirms that Poly Network has offered the hackers a $500,000 bug bounty. The company has also publicly thanked the hacker, whom they refer to as Mr. Whitehat, for helping them improve their security. A question. Is this a case in which the distinction between a bounty and an extortion payoff amounts to a distinction without a difference? It seems unlikely that a criminal would swap $600 million for $500,000, So the crooks may have felt the approach of the law and decided that discretion was the better part of valor. On the other hand, half a million bucks is an awfully big bounty. We imagine that there's more to this story. As authorities and victims of various forms of online fraud have shown an ability to track and claw back ill-gotten altcoin, a subsector of the C2C market has emerged offering to verify that cryptocurrency being used for illicit purposes is clean, untrackable, and unrecoverable. The BBC reports that the analysis firm Elliptic has found and looked into a service on the darknet that's designed to do just that. Elliptic told the BBC, quote, It's called anti-analysis, and criminals are now able to check their own Bitcoin wallets and see whether any association with criminal activity could be flagged by authorities, End quote. So far it's imperfect, but of course that can be expected to change should anti-analysis proprietors be unmolested to improve their product. Heimdall, the security company named for the guardian of Asgard's Rainbow Bridge, late last week described a new strain of ransomware, Deep Blue Magic, that abuses a legitimate third-party disk encryption tool by initiating but not finishing the encryption process. Deep Blue Magic disables security software before beginning encryption, subsequently deleting its own executables, rendering it resistant to forensic analysis. Heimdall says that it's found a way of restoring affected systems, but Deep Blue Magic will bear watching. Various ransomware gangs are actively exploiting the print nightmare Windows vulnerability, CyberScoop reports. CrowdStrike last week reported that MagnaBurr operators – we're using the vulnerability against targets in South Korea. A little later, Cisco Talos described how the Vice Society, a criminal group that made its creepy bones by hitting school districts and healthcare organizations, has also turned to print nightmare. This particular vulnerability has proven unusually difficult to fix. Microsoft, and we disclose that Microsoft is a sponsor of the CyberWire, has both patched various aspects of the print spooler issue— and recommended that users disable this particular service. And finally, T-Mobile is investigating a criminal's claim to have breached a very large set of customer data, possibly 100 million fulls, held by the mobile company, Reuters reports. As we speak today, that investigation remains in progress, and we'll have some updates and industry reactions in this afternoon's pro-privacy briefing. One effect of the story, however, was already evident by late morning. Barron's reports that T-Mobile stock was down by 3.5% in early trading. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. CyberWire Daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's chief security officer, also our chief analyst, but more important than any of that, he is the host of the CSO Perspectives podcast, <laughs> which is part of CyberWire Pro. Rick, it's always great to have you back. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate that. So on this week's CSO Perspectives, you are talking about orchestration. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume <laughs> That you have not replaced Dimitar Nikolov as the musical director for the Philharmonia Orchestra in our great city of Baltimore. So what exactly is going on here,
2: Rick? Well, you're right about that, Dave. I had just under three years, count them, three of my mom force marching me to accordion lessons when I was just a wee lad. So, <laughs> I'm unless sorry. the, Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, boy. Unless we want to, you know, uh, uh, the people of Baltimore want to hear a 55-year-old rendition of it. That's a moray, okay? I think it's best <laughs> that I stay off the stage. Where and, the young
0: ladies lined up around the block when they heard <laughs> they, you playing the accordion. I can only
2: imagine... They absolutely did. Yeah. And yes, uh, I want to make that perfectly clear to everybody. I said accordion lessons. Yes, that was accordion.
0: Well, I learned something new here today. And uh, in addition to the endless pit of talent that you bring to the cyber wire, which never ceases to amaze me, uh, what exactly is going on here when we're talking about orchestration?
2: Yeah, we're talking about orchestrating the security stack. And so how do you maintain an update with high velocity, all of that software and hardware you're using to implement things like, you know, zero trust and intrusion kill chain prevention, resilience, and risk forecasting?
0: Well, you know, I'm no expert when it comes to these things, but are are you saying to me that security people shouldn't just remotely log into these systems and just start
2: making changes manually? (laughs) I mean, come on. What, what, what is the better way? <laughs> you know, a, a, a sad face, I think a lot of people are still doing that, all right? Because the crux of it is that there are many different approaches, but none have really caught on as the community's best practice that most of us are using. We have everything from using a standard DevOps <laughs> model to using our source seam tools to sort of bridge to the DevOps model, to installing a single vendor orchestration platform from one of the big firewall vendors, and finally, hmm. maybe moving our entire organization over to some sassy architecture. And I realized that I just threw a metric ton of acronyms at everybody, all <laughs> right? So, But if they want to find out what all that means, they should just come listen to the show.
0: All right. Well, it is CSO Perspectives. It is part of CyberWire Pro. You can find out all about that on our website, cyberwire.com. And uh, not only is he a chief security <laughs> officer, he is an accordion player. Accordion, the chief, accordion, the chief accordion ex- player accordion. extraordinaire. That's right. That's right. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. You betcha, sir. And joining me once again is Chris Novak. He's the global director of Verizon's Threat Research Advisory Center. Chris, it's always great to have you back. Um, I wanted to touch today on incident response. I know you and your team have been focused on this lately. It's something where um, you're looking on uh, advancing your capabilities there. What can you share with us?
1: Sure. Yeah, always great to be on the show, Dave. Thanks again. So yeah, we're, we're always looking to try to figure out what it is that we can be doing to evolve our capabilities, evolve the kind of outcomes that we can bring to, to clients when they're looking for help from an incident response perspective. And, you know, when we look at things, you know, it, there's been the historical traditional way of doing things you'd, you'd you'd go on site you'd grab disk images heck I remember back in the early days I mean these are real early early days I'm dating myself here but um, <laughs> we, we'd go on site with a you know a binder full of floppy disks to boot up a system and then you'd have a, a hard drive you'd try to pull that data down on and it would take seemingly weeks to, to grab a forensic image and obviously things have right. evolved substantially since then things have gotten so much faster um, but we're trying to obviously move away from that entire model Model altogether now almost everything we do is um, able to be done remotely. We're able to extract a lot of triage data from systems without ever having to actually physically lay hands on them. But one of the things we're trying to extend beyond that is you know obviously everybody knows Verizon as a giant telco. One of the things we're trying to take advantage of is is some of our new capabilities around things like 5G um, and how we might hmm. be able to integrate 5G connectivity and the speeds that that brings with our ability to provide a client with out-of-band data collection, right? So think of it as, you know, historically, if we had to pull a lot of data out of an environment for incident response purposes, or we wanted to stream data out while there was maybe a live incident going on and we didn't want it going in and out the same pipes or crossing the same East West carters within their network, because, you know, maybe the threat actor is looking at it. Maybe the, the threat actor has access to some of their infrastructure being able to drop in essentially a 5G uh, a transmitter will allow us to actually be able to take that data and provide that organization with a complete out-of-band mechanism of us being able to interact with them and them being able to interact with us and being able to do it at you know gigabit plus speeds. And that's something that just historically you just couldn't do before.
0: You know, the shift we've seen, I'd say the accelerated shift that we've seen to the cloud, thanks to so many uh, organizations responding to covid Does that make your life easier as well? As you say, you you don't necessarily have to be on site.
1: Yeah, it actually does. Um, So I I think that it makes our life easier in a couple of ways. One is, you know, we're finding an increasing number of organizations have either already moved or in the process of moving to cloud and replicating data from their instance to ours for purposes of doing, you know, incident response or investigations. I mean, that is almost as simple as a button click and the speed to do that is, is tremendous. So that has been, you know, I'd say a huge improvement that I think probably all of us in the incident response community have seen and same for our clients. Um, but then the other benefit we get out of that as well is um, Verizon had announced that we've got a um, a pretty extensive partnership with Amazon Web Services as it relates to our 5G MEC capabilities. Um, and so that actually goes one step further and says we not only have the ability to pull data at incredible speeds over 5G. But our 5G radio is literally connected right to the edge of an AWS environment. So we can either push or pull data between, think of it as a cloud environment over a gigabit plus out of band, in and out of a customer environment, just as seamlessly as we would do anything else. Yeah,
0: that's fascinating. I mean, um, I have to say uh, it's nice to hear uh, of a specific use case uh, for 5G. I think a lot for a lot of us, that's been a little fuzzy till now. So it's interesting to hear a specific description like that.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, that was something that our team was always looking for as we said, hey, this is fantastic. You know, it's, it's great for, you know, streaming more movies or all the other things people have talked about. But for us and my team, as it relates to security, that out-of-band piece is critical. I mean, I'll give you a, for example, we had an organization that was suffering a fairly massive incident and they needed some really bad help And they were basically saying, look, they they got to the point where they were basically saying that they were going to just shut down all of their internet connections worldwide. They said, look, we need to get this Mm -hmm. under control before this gets worse. We're just going to shut down all of our internet connections. But then the next question they had was, how do we get all of the necessary incident response data now out of the environment? Trying to do that all via sneaker net is really just not feasible. And we said, well, We could drop in wireless connectivity. And so we did some proof of concept around some of these areas to be able to say, all right, let's see what we can actually move in and out. We can drop in some of these things in strategic locations where we know we already have the 5G infrastructure in certain cities to be able to essentially pull that data out. So that proof of concept was fantastic for us. I expect that that'll be something that will be integrated more formally into, you know, a lot of our offerings going forward, uh, especially as it relates to incident response. All right. Well, Chris Novak, thanks for joining us.
0: And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security Ha. Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. And check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence. And every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com podcast. The Cyberwire Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Puru Prakash, Justin Saby, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carole Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Filecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.